Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 111 with my friend Lisa DeLay. Big thanks to everyone who's uh, been sending me lovely messages. Many of you will know I've taken a break from social media and from uh, reading news and from various other things. My mental health has been particularly difficult. Uh, You'll probably have heard some of that with my interview with Diana Groover on the podcast last time. And after we were done there, I realized I really needed to take a bit more of a strong break on some things. Social media is tricky for me because it is uh, really wonderful to connect with everybody. And I, it's so relationship-oriented for me. But also, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be a painful place. And there's news that's weird, and conspiracy theories, and just so much that goes on there that it ends up for me being kind of a net loss, especially in this time where I'm disconnected from my flesh and blood friends and I, I lean on social media for things that cannot provide and I kind of get suckered in like a sailor being tempted by a siren at sea. So thank you to everyone for giving me so much grace and kindness as I've stepped back a little bit from engaging and DMs and comments. I will be posting you know, the news of this podcast and other things uh, still kind of automatically scheduling to my to Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I won't be there engaging in the comments. So thank you for extending me that grace. It's been really, really kind getting some wonderful messages from you all. So this week, I have Lisa DeLay on the show. Lisa has written a really wonderful book called The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. And in many ways, it's very similar to You Are Enough, my devotional, but it comes from a different angle and uses a different set of uh, language and tools to come at the same kinds of problems in terms of moving towards ourselves with love and wholeness and grace. And so Lisa uh, feels like a kindred spirit. She is also writing from a discipleship and spiritual formation perspective, which is really helpful for me as I'm now involved more in discipleship work within my church community. So really, really enjoyed this book, and I hope that you will enjoy our conversation. Here we go. Lisa, I am so thrilled that you are here today with me doing this. I have been uh, reading your book the last few days. In fact, I was reading it out loud to my wife last night, laying on the couch at 11 p.m., and mm. I am loving it. So thank you uh, for being here. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak with you again, and I'm honored that you would have me on. Oh, honestly, the honor is mine. When 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 you had me on your show and you were, you, you'd said like, okay, I've really loved your book, but I've got this book coming out and I'm nervous that you're going to feel like it's similar. <laughs> like I hadn't read your book at that point. So I'm like, okay, I'll just take it on face value. Now that I'm reading your book and I'm, I'm loving it so much. And, and yes, it's similar, but it's like similar at the level of, I think the spirit's agenda, hmm. you know, we're drawing from similar things, but what I love is that you, you quote completely different set of people to me. You mm. are leaning on different resources and traditions to me, mm-hmm. but the thrust is the same. Yeah. And so you've written a book that is trauma-informed, spiritual practices, uh, working with our you know uh, distorted thoughts, all these different things, but you've come at it from a completely different angle. You've done a really deep work in ensuring that it's culturally diverse and non-white centric. And 
And yours feels to me like it's more of a discipleship piece, more of a spiritual formation piece than I was intentionally constructing. Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, I, I'm thrilled with your book and I can't (laughs) wait to recommend it to everybody. So I am, I'm super pumped. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. My, my big hope in the book is actually that people don't do the book alone, that they, it's possible to read it solo, but actually I'm hoping that it's done in groups or even better yet with a trained director or wise elder or therapist or something like that, because there's a lot of, um, it asks a lot of you, it asks a lot of questions at the end of chapters, and it invites you to go into deep terrain that's shadowed terrain that you might not know what's really in there. And there are portions that could be potentially be triggering if you have a um, trauma in your past. And so I'm hoping that people don't feel like they are reading it and then suddenly in over their heads. I would prefer that people go in um, like you might go into an actual wilderness. If you're going to an actual wilderness for a month or so, you would hopefully not do that completely alone either. Yeah, for sure. We were, Lisa and I were chatting about this before we hit record um, because she pointed out something to me, and I'd love you to kind of walk us back through it, about how so many books on spiritual practice, they don't really warn you that that you might uncover some worms under these rocks. <laughs> like, I mean, I wrote yeah. my book very focused on healing. And so there's this great big disclaimer at the beginning, like, this might hurt, move slowly. But, mm. but that was very specifically what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and but, but I thought... It was a really sensible point that you raised because none of the books that I've read on spiritual practice give you any kind of heads up mm-hmm. that you might find yourself in painful, scary territory. Yeah. What I noticed, um, and I studied spiritual formation in graduate school, and so we learned lots of things about the devotional classics over the the millennia of Christianity from reading the desert fathers and mothers and all kinds of classics and all kinds of ways to um, create greater devotion uh, with God through different kinds of prayer practices. There are so many rich, beautiful ways to to pray or have a stronger life of devotion. And it was so wonderful and refreshing. But what I noticed each time was that if I ever – really invested myself in a practice and really dug into it like it's supposed to be done, not not in a hobbyist type of way, but in a with an investment of time and and love toward God, God would answer back. God would um, journey with me. And in doing that, because God desires my wholeness and my sin to be remedied, <laughs> I think the spirit shows us what where our wounds are and where our weaknesses are and that in the process of creating spiritual fruit in our lives we are rid of these other things but that isn't that weeding process if you will isn't painless and can take us by surprise if we're thinking oh these are these practices are like wonderful therapy like getting going to a spa and having a massage and a facial it's not it's not really like that and i didn't notice any books that i got were really going to warn you so much in protestantism i think in in um the catholic tradition there's so much time and effort spent 
there's so much more knowledge in the sense of journeying with someone that they are um, much more equipped to deal with the suffering part or the harrowing of the garden of the heart Mm -hmm. and your spiritual directors are completely prepared for whatever comes up. But in Protestantism where we might take these spiritual practices on as little treats or something as little um, bits of refreshment. um, It's not really what's happening. It's not really what the spiritual practices are for. They're part of um, they're a grace of God that brings us the ministry of the spirit and the ministry of the spirit involves a healing process that is kind of like a physical healing process where you might, if you need surgery, you might have to go under the knife to get something removed and that's going to create pain and eventual healing that makes you better. And so I think that there are parallels with the, with the physical and the spiritual in this case and not to scare anybody, but you come out the other side so much stronger, so much more healed, so much more aware of God, but also um, how much God deeply loves you and cares for you and is willing to, is always with you and is willing to um, see that everything gets met, all your needs get met and has been with you and uh, has been inviting you the whole time. And then when you sink into the practice, you get a chance to go all the way, move all the way through it. Um, And you don't want to like jump off the operating table. (laughs) Mm. And that will be the tendency if you, if you thought, well, I, I, I thought I was getting a facial, not, not an operation. Yes, (laughs) seriously. Uh, (laughs) And, and if the, unfortunately in so much mainstream evangelicalism, it is really just like a facelift. Like that's that's mm. the extent of the spiritual transformation that any of us have been told we needed. Well, you know, just add fifteen percent Jesus to your Western lifestyle, and you're good. <laughs> you know, mm. so to to face up with scriptural statements like uh, "you must die" <laughs> to to get to gain your life, you must lose it. Um, it it's like a heart transplant level mm. operation, right? We're gonna cu- we're gonna break your bones and carve open your chest mm. and take out your stony heart and put in a, f- mm. a fleshy one. Yeah. There's um there's an appropriation. You, you what you were just saying there about God's presence is always with us. Yes, the Spirit is always is always I think trying to till the garden of our mm. souls. But it seems to me that I I grew up Protestant. Um, you know, broadly kind of charismatic. And, and I've, I've got a real faith for God to show up and do things. But so much of that I've realized was a bit cerebral. Mm. And, and the more that I look at Protestantism at large, whether we're talking kind of like your mainstream evangelical people or, or the more historical Protestant figures, there is something of a of a disconnect, it often seems. I'm painting in very broad strokes, but mm-hmm. a bit more cerebral, a bit less gritty and lived. Because mm-hmm. when I read the spiritual practices recommended by Protestants, it it does often kind of feel like, well, just try harder, just do these things and repeat them better. But when I go and read Nowen or Merton, mm-hmm. I'm left like in tears. I'm left going, okay, this is so much more than just doing something. If I actually did this, it would change what I believe. And I'm, I'm afraid to even begin this. 
I'm rarely afraid <laughs> to do things recommended in Protestant books, uh, but, but I actually feel provoked. It, you know, you, you mentioned that, that in, in Catholicism and in, in Orthodoxy, the practices seem to be rooted in a different space. Mm, yes. Right. So um, that's such a good point that you're that you're really, really close to that I'm just going to finally unwrap the package, which is Protestantism is is in history very close to the modern era of reason. Uh, you see this so much in Calvin's work and Luther uh, using the mind and reason. And um, we are just that the, the lineage of Protestantism, especially in North America, is especially influenced by the age of reason and enlightenment. And we don't realize how really unchristian that is in terms of how Jesus would have thought or lived uh, in these rich Middle Eastern, very embodied ways. Everything is spiritual, period. There isn't something that isn't spiritual. And so, um, one of the nice things about going back to Orthodox Christians reading uh, their prayer practices, their um, their wisdom, is that it's incredibly embodied. Mm. And we will often act as though, I mean, this is just so typical, we don't even realize we're doing it, but we often act like I'm the person who I am is this brain and this brain gets walked around from room to room by this thing I call a body. And that's me. But we don't think that our entire organism is our body, including our brain. And when it gets traumatized, it is traumatized down to the, the cells, all the cells in the body. And it's traumatized in nonverbal, non-conscious ways. And so it has to heal in those ways too. And uh, that's why the practices that are spiritual that involve the body, for instance, pilgrimage, or maybe um, praying in different bodily positions, prostrate, or really involving your body. Maybe some people do um, some form of stretching or yoga or just um, prayer walks or something that's really engaging the physical, your physical form they are really changed by that. And that's because they're so tend to be so disengaged mm. from their organism. And so that's really um, a huge deficit often within Protestantism. And I think it really hurts our spiritual well-being and our healing process too, because we of course are um, paying the price for for our trauma in bodily ways, but we're not necessarily approaching healing in those ways. Yes, yes, that's so that's so true. My experience is is the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you you unpack a bunch of that early on in the book. In fact, you you kind of start it with this discussion around how we build meaning and our maps of understanding ourselves and theology and the world. And you talk about uh, kind of like here in the, the West, global North, we, we've inherited uh, not just this rational thinking, but mm -hmm. like this actually very sort of Greek dualistic, but you were just hinting at it, right? The spiritual life versus non-spiritual mm -hmm. life. Um, and, and that there happens to be a wealth of alternative maps yeah. that many of us are not actually even aware of. Uh -huh. uh, 
I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that and, and why that's so important that we start there. Yeah. And one of the ways that is um, very evident just in our own uh, country, if we're talking about North America, and I realize that you're probably podcast just like mine is heard all around the globe. Um, but one of the ways I noticed right away is that we have a kind of dominant um, white-centered, or I would call it empire theology in, in the United States, but in Canada also, is that there is a kind of white-centered or dominant theology, and then there's what we tend to consider these other theologies. And Black liberation is, is kind of one of these other theologies. Well, you notice, too, in some of these other theologies, which should be mainstreamed, which should be just included in sort of the orchestra of what God is up to, mm. that they are much, much more embodied. And especially this is true um, with uh, Black American brothers and sisters and siblings who grew up enslaved. They were used to different kinds of worship, communication, um, and spiritualities, and they were silenced in every sort of way. And so their contemplative spirituality or the kind that created the kind of resilience where you survive the horrors of the enslavement period and the abuses beyond that were very embodied, involved dance and clapping, stomping, call and response. And I get into this a little bit in the book about how much we can learn, even within our own culture, within our own general culture in this hemisphere of the world, um, these different ways of approaching spirituality that do involve the entire body, that don't just stay in the head, uh, which is kind of the default for many, um, for many of us spiritually, whether Catholic or Protestant, things do stay usually very cerebral. And I think that that is actually one of the reasons why the Pentecostal and charismatic movement took off as it did so, so very much in Protestantism is because that that was such a missing piece that people were like, oh, my body wants to dance. My my body wants to respond. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's been too disconnected from, from the rest of it. And so I think there was this, you know, huge burst of popularity in those, um, those aspects of spirituality that, that were just not there otherwise. <clears throat> but when we go back to, um, I talk a lot about in the book about trying to understand what are what are usually the marginalized voices, and that the gospel actually comes from those places. The the good news of what God is up to comes from the outside, comes from the periphery, comes from the marginalized, and that those voices are often treated as though they are for other people. They're, they're fine for other people, but that's not real Christianity. That's not real theology. That's not, you know, the, the, the core of what we should be learning or systematic theology. But I think that it's, that's the reverse is true. So that um, what Jesus was up to in fulfilling uh, prophecy of uh, the, the blind shall see and the lame shall walk and the captives will be set free that is the story of marginalized and oppressed people. That is the story of the people that Jesus came uh, into as a culture and was as a person who's brown person who came to a oppressed culture in poverty. And he came as that 
kind of a person for those kinds of people. And the rich and the powerful uh, don't uh, have to worry or nor do they care about uh, other other people in those ways. They don't have to worry about them. Those people are statistics to them. Those people get in the way. So I try to bring out some of these even maligned theologies or um, overlooked theologies and spiritualities that inform us so much about um, the totality of what God is up to, this, the totality of who we are as human bodies in our bodies. Um, a lot of times what we see, unfortunately, is we see with the dualism is also the, it makes it easier to hate other people who don't look like us with dualism. Mm -hmm. So we can despise people who are the other person is easier to despise because instead of seeing us, we see us and them, you know? Mm -hmm. So who, what, who is them? What them looks different, right? Them, uh, those people think differently. They look differently. They behave differently and that's unfamiliar. And so it must be, um, repugnant to us or you know it's just so much easier to push that hate outward or that um even if it's not exactly hate it's still something we're not happy with or we do not prefer and so it might be punished in some way yeah yeah i'm totally with you i love that i am trying to think internally about the time period in my life because i do I do have this memory. I can rem I can remember a time hearing rumors about other spiritualities and other theologies and other ways of understanding God. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just growing up a good Protestant, hearing about those bad bad Catholics, and <laughs> right. <laughs> and my children are are baptized Roman Catholic, incidentally. Um, so that's a big swing in my life. But mm. but I I remember this feeling of suspicion. Mm -hmm. and and i don't know exactly what are all the ingredients that the spirit used to soften my heart and to to open me up mm. but i let's let's let me let me present a potential devil's advocate here mm -hmm. um let's say you are a a white woman in her 40s or 50s, who really does love Jesus and is like given their life in sacrificial service to him as much as they understand that. And they do not consider themselves a racist, you know, intellectually. They're like, no, I'm not one of those racist people. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of these women <laughs> and men <laughs> um, who have really good hearts, but there are these things that they, they just haven't learned to see. Mm -hmm. What would be your invitation to that kind of person who, who maybe doesn't feel that they're missing anything, mm -hmm. but, but where you and I have journeyed for, for different reasons. And obviously, you know, I am a white man. And so the reasons I've had to journey with that are going to be different to, to you. What's the invitation? What, what would you say to that person? Well, often people are well-meaning and kind, and they can still prop up racist systems and culture just ignorantly or until um, be fine with, with um, 
you know, saying something anti-racist and helpful until it becomes inconvenient. And I guess that's where the rubber meets the road. So what I would say is that if it's true that a person is feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm, you know, I just kind of don't want to cause any trouble, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a, um, I would say I would challenge them to just make sure that you're reading um, somebody who doesn't look like you, especially a person of color, such as um, a black theologian or um, someone who has maybe a complaint. Um, why do they have that complaint? Most people who say such things maybe know a black person, but are they actually close friends? Do they, are they um, close enough that they could call this person at two in the morning and vice versa? Like they, proximity doesn't mean that we're not going to um, do things that actually hurt a certain people in the community. So I would say that, you know, some people will say they don't, they don't want to stand in the way of, of progress or something like that. And maybe they even are angered by things like George Floyd being killed um, completely unnecessarily and things like that. But when it gets inconvenient or, we, or things like reparations start to get talked about, that you see like some bristling uh, hairs on the neck. And I would say that anytime there's a discomfort there, like a racially charge discomfort to start listening and to start reading and to not decide that you have your mind made up one way or the other about about something that isn't personally hurting you mm -hmm. um, because I think what happens is we we always and this includes me we think we know how things are but when they don't directly impact us we really are very ignorant. Like it, I'm not scared of being pulled over by the police. Um, I don't think my life is going to be in danger. If that's you, if you basically don't think you will be killed by the police when you get pulled over, then you don't understand what it's like to have a, a different kind of body. And mm -hmm. so start, start listening, start reading. What is it like to live in a body you can't change and to live in fear? And some of the first responses, you, it can't be that bad. Oh, I, I know it's, I feel bad for them, but it, you know, it can't be that bad. Or, and, and any kind of minimalizing like that is not really listening. You know, when I, when the Black Lives Matter first got started and, and I saw pushback, I, I thought, I felt so um, brokenhearted because I thought Black Lives Matter is one of the least things you can say like it's literally like who how can anybody i just kept thinking how can this be a a thing you would argue about that black lives matter i just thought um but literally that was like the most basic thing they could say hey our lives matter we don't want to be killed and they would they would actually get pushback on that they people would go no oh uh, Black lives, blue lives matter. I just, it just showed me how deep the problem really was that the people couldn't say, of course, you're right. How can we help? 
Yeah. Like you're getting gunned down and killed like at random. You must be absolutely terrified out of your mind. When your loved one leaves the house in the car, you might get be pulled over for a light out. And and uh, if you exit the car and you make some move or the person thinks you have a gun and you have a cell phone, you could just die. And it's not in enormous numbers as as the media would lead us to believe, but it's enough that people are terrified. Mm-hmm. And when you simply say our lives matter, you're getting pushback. So for me, I thought the problem is so much worse. And it's and it's um with with the cameras that are always rolling, and I, I thank God that they are, we are getting you know force-fed reality over and over and over again. And so I I know it takes it takes a lot of listening and it takes a lot of um, reading hard things, and I don't think um, it's going to break your heart if you're a white person and it hasn't broken your heart yet about racism and what's happening now and what has happened and what has led us to this point. You you might not really be understanding what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really great statement if it hasn't broken your heart yet because yeah what what else can you say lisa i'd love to hear uh some of more of your story and where you come from what why and how you've brought all these themes together uh into this beautiful work for a long time i've been interested in how do people transform how do they heal I went to graduate school to study spiritual formation in, uh, around 2007, and I really went to school to be a kind of an informed writer, not just someone writing from my experience. And I gained so much through that education. Um, one thing, though, even though I had wonderful professors, it was a very white-centered place, male-dominated white-centered place. And one of the things I I learned, um, I'm Puerto Rican on my dad's from my dad, who was a brown man. And he was a person who was in the Southern Baptist um, group, fundamentalist group. And he was a pastor and I was a pastor's kid. And so I was always around Christianity and I was always really painfully aware how much my dad stood out and how much he was trying very hard to assimilate. Mm. And it never worked. He never um, was white enough. And the Puerto Rican culture, which is so rich and, and so infused with life in terms of music, in terms of dance, um, it's very, you know, vibrant and lively. Well, all those things to a fundamentalist Southern Baptists are sinful. They're not um, white enough. And so they should be erased, at least in the time where my dad was involved. There's no, there wasn't things like you couldn't dance and you couldn't drink and you couldn't go to movies and you couldn't play cards. (laughs) The list was so long. The list of banned books was so, so long. And of course you couldn't read books by, um, liberation theologists that were those um, Latinos from South America and things like that. So what he was really learning over and over again is these white supremacist claims, which he was believing and being erased at the same time. And it did him in eventually. It's 
uh, for a lot of people, you to to um, to get ahead. If you're a brown person, sometimes you try really hard to assimilate, and it can be very soul killing. And I think he realized at some point, I don't really have any friends here. I just am expected to assimilate, but I can't really do that because I can't change my body. I can't. I can't change who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, it. He passed away when I was twenty, and. I never really forgot his struggle or his contradictions. He was a man of contradictions too. There was, that could be its whole book in itself. (laughs) But I remember when um, maybe it was 2013, 14, when there were, there was huge influxes coming in from on the Southern border from Central and South America. And these people are basically treated like infestations. Uh, Something um, less human than the rest of us white people. And I take after my mom, my skin is light and I can pass for white, but I was born in Puerto Rico and, and spoke Spanish until we moved to the Pittsburgh area. And I don't, um, I'm, I'm a combination person, but since I could see my dad suffering in real time as a Brown person, it, it's just very, it's very close to home. When I saw people being, abused and mistreated who looked just like my dad. And I thought, you know, this kind of, this part of me, this part of my identity, um, I'm married to a white man who's so white, he burns through a t-shirt, <laughs> um, <laughs> sun burns through a t-shirt, but I didn't have to, you know, pick that part of my identity up um, in terms of my own, like risking my own um, privilege or something like that. But it hurt my feelings because I thought, you know, these, these are kin people to me. These are not, these people are not unrelated to me. And any one of those people could just as well be my dad. And it began to really bother me how people were othered. And I started looking into, you know, how do we get to this point where we treat other people? You know, most of these people coming from the border are Christians too, by the way. And I don't think we give a crap about that. Uh, these people coming up to have a better life, to escape drugs, drug gangs, cartels, and, um, you know, cities, villages run by people with, with guns who are extremely dangerous, who um, they're escaping for their lives. They don't want to leave their homes and they're Christians. and there, you know, there's a whole bunch of bad things that can happen to them along the way, and there's a whole bunch of ways that they're vulnerable. And I realized that I had to make people more aware of what white centeredness does, uh, the violence it does, and, and that's part of why I began to to try to explore bringing something about spiritual formation, but also trying to help us understand what creates the climate within our hearts Our, I, you know, I call it the wild land within, but it's all the unseen pieces of us. It's all the things that make us who we are. We're influenced by our culture. We're influenced by things that um, try to keep white centeredness the norm when in the world, of course, it's completely abnormal to be a white person. Most people in the world are Brown or black and um, I was trying to disrupt some of those faulty assumptions that we have that make us who we are and make us understand God in certain ways. Uh, so that's probably a really muddled answer. 
<laughs> to what you are asking. But I wanted to make sure that I wrote a spiritual formation book to help us look at some of the wounds that we have, some of the places of shadow within us, and also to try to understand, especially in this hemisphere of the world, that the dominant culture that, that is white often is uh, a rather delusional, shallow look at what's happening in what God is up to, what is going on in Christian history, and um, and the soft spot of God's heart. Mm. That is so real. Like if we even just look at our script, at our Bible, you know, yeah. the hallmark of of white <laughs> evangelical. Right. You know, it's all about the word, brother. Um, so if if we look at our Bible, this the almost the entire thing is the voice of the downtrodden. Mm-hmm. the voice of the people on the margins, right? We don't hear what's happening in, in the halls of power. Right. And, and, and in the examples in the Old Testament where we do hear what's happening in the halls of power, it's to expose corruption. Yeah. And yet, now that especially kind of, yeah, in global north, we live in the halls of power and those of us who operate in that space it's kind of like, yeah, and no one told us that the faith we were handed is actually irrelevant for mm. being in a position of privilege. We will take a quick break from the show so that I can tell you about my Patreon. This show is supported every month and annually by my patrons. They are wonderful people. Every single one is fabulous. Big shout out to Lyndall, Nick, Kelly, and Natasha, who have all come on in the last couple of weeks. Thank you so much for supporting me and my work. Thank you for making it possible for this show to be on the air. There's a wonderful little community of folks over on patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle, who sew into this show every month and into the other things that I do. And that's one thing that I've really enjoyed remaining in closer contact with. While I haven't been doing social media on the current break, I am actively connected with my patrons and I'm really enjoying those conversations. So thanks for being a part of the community. If you are listening to the show and you've never supported it, if you would like to think about that, I sure would be blessed patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. You can give for as little as $3 a month or $30 a year, and you will gain access to various supporter-only things, including the B-sides, where I sit down with a friend digitally, and we unpack these episodes in greater depth. Uh, It's a lot of fun. B-sides are awesome. So you'll gain access to those if you become a patron today. Thank you so much. Back to the show. I'm so thankful that you've begun with that framework and that the entire book is informed that way. It makes it so much richer because you, you said it just, just a moment ago, it affects how we view God, right? Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if the, if we do not just, just even thinking about um, what you were touching on earlier by living living in fear, we talk about our African American, African Canadian friends, people we love, family members who live in fear of being murdered by mm-hmm. law enforcement with no recourse. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to approach God mm-hmm. from that place of fear? That's something I don't know, and it could well be something really helpful for me to learn. For yeah. me. That's just purely on the selfish space, let alone answering the question, 
you know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, who is my brother? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and moving in solidarity to, to humanity. I wonder if you could explain very briefly the Johari window, because you introduced that early in the book and I felt it, I, I, I wasn't familiar with it. And it was a super helpful rubric uh, that you come back to a few times. Yeah. The Johari window is um, a heuristic that looks like a square divided evenly um, into four squares. And this is again, not a real thing. It's just a way to understand um, something within ourselves that, um, how can we understand ourselves better? It was developed by two psychologists. Um, they put their names together to make the word Jahari. And um, what it represents is the four quadrants represent different ways that we know ourselves and that we are known. And the first quadrant is just what we know about ourselves, all the things we know about ourselves and that other people know about us. It's, it's what is known. It's called the arena. And then the second quadrant is our blind spot. It, people know stuff about us, but we might not know it about ourselves. For instance, um, especially when we're young, we, we might not realize that, I mean, this is just a silly example, but you know, at adolescence, we might not realize that we have bad manners or that we're rude or that, um, were impatient. But of course, other people, especially older, wiser people can see that about us. And as we mature and grow up and hopefully become more wise, that blind spot region changes shape a bit. And these four perfect squares don't, they're not really squares ever. They're not perfectly the same size or anything like that. And these windows uh, or, or squares change shape in our lifetime. Now, the third window or, or square uh, is called facade. And this to me is really what the book is about mostly. The facade window, it ends about um, window two and window three, the, the blind spot window and the facade window. Facade window is something we, we know about ourselves, but other people don't know. So it's, it's kind of, we can keep things in shadow. Um, and I call it the I think it was it was Robert Bohr on the uh, CXMH podcast, and he said if it was if it was invented now, this one would be called the Instagram filter. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> and I thought that was a, a really accurate way to say it. So, it was, facade is often what we present to the world, or you know, for me, like a lot of people, I want to seem smart. I want to seem funny. I want you to like me. I, you know, want to seem like a good person. I think these are pretty typical for a lot of people. And, and I'm insecure, just like everybody else. And um, some, some of us are more insecure than others. And we can become less insecure as we gain more confidence or as our wounds heal. Um, now I'm insecure, but I, I'm okay telling you that because I'm more healed than I was <laughs> in the past. So um, we all have these facades. Now, some of the some facade is important just for um, having your own boundaries. Like people who reveal too much about themselves, oversharers, maybe they should have a little more boundaries, a little more facade, uh, just to have privacy. But facade is very interesting because it is a, it can be, you can be a fraud too. You can put up things that aren't true to manipulate people or to stay hiding. And this is where, 
healing core wounds comes in. And I talk about core wounds in the book, which we might not have a chance to speak of today, but um, it's all really important to understanding who you are, where your wounds are, how to move through to understand them and, and to allow God to God's presence and the Holy Spirit to move into those places and heal them. And then the fourth one is just the total unknown. It's unknown to you. It's unknown to others. And you only know about that area when it becomes uh, one of the other areas, when it moves into blind spot area or when it moves into um, the arena where everyone knows um, or when it moves into the facade area. So for instance, you could have a, an area of total unknown and then you realize uh, someone tells you, you know, I don't know if you know this, but you were abused when you were little. And then you all of a sudden you think, wow, that explains a lot. Mm. Um, and then you make a, you make a confession of, of this. You say to everybody, I want you to all pray for me because this, this thing happened to me. And now it explains this, this, and this. Mm. And, and so it moves into a, a different area of knowing. And then from there, you might have wounds that need to be healed from that, but it, it it shifts from one part of your interior world to a different part. So the Jahari window is just a way to understand what, how do we know things and, and how do people know us? And it's kind of a helpful starting point for understanding the interior life. And, and really when we think about the interior life, um, and this is really what Jesus talks about, Jesus is speaking about this life when he speaks about the four soils in, in the Bible, the the different soils that can either receive or not receive God's message. And, and God's message is, is one of love and hope and restoration. And so, you know, we have the, the trampled soil, the weedy soil, the rocky soil, and then the good soil. And so we're hoping that through um, intimacy with God this, and the spiritual practices and devotion to God, we can um, form loving bonds and trusting bonds with God and with others so that we have good soil for a fruitful harvest. I really appreciated that, that heuristic and, and the for, the talk on the four soils as well. I just like, I can get so in my head and, and in, in my mind, and I'm also like highly relational and mm-hmm. just, just the statement to be reminded, there are things about you that you and everyone else know. I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. there are yeah. things about you that you don't see, but others do. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, of mm-hmm. course that's true. <laughs> but I do not think about that very often. And that's not that's not to say they're all negative, right? Right, right, exactly. exactly. Facts. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, the, there are things about me that only I know. Right. And even my wife doesn't know. There are probably many things that I take for granted that she would understand about my motivations and why I do things that she has no idea. <laughs> right, right. And and true, and and also with the facade area, number three, is that a lot of times we are um, the more wounded we are, the more we might want to be accepted or impressive or um, special. And we might jockey and and do to hopefully get the responses and the needs met that we need met. And it's important to know that if you have a really big area of facade, you're going to have a really 
a lot of extra stress, a really pretty bumpy time. And we all have facade. Nobody has zero facade area. We all have it. And, and to some extent, a little extent, it's necessary that, for instance, you don't go to your boss and just tell your boss every little deep, dark secret on your mind at that moment. It just doesn't make any sense. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, there are ways we purposefully shut people out of our lives that we shouldn't. And we are fakers in ways that we shouldn't be. And, and sometimes we think it's facade and actually it's a blind spot. So we think we're, we're hiding something and we think people don't know, but it's actually a number, the number two area because mm. people can see right through the facade. <laughs> so we're not that wow. clever. You know, we're not that clever. We think, oh, nobody knows that that I feel this way or, you know, um, my one friend in college was gay and she didn't tell me for two years. And then she, she said, I have to tell you, I've been wanting to tell you for a long time. I said, you're gay. She goes, is it that obvious? I said, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we know each other really well. <laughs> it's okay. I can't believe it's that obvious. I'm like, yeah, I don't, it doesn't matter. It's fine. But it was like, she thought it was a facade. I was like, no, it's a blind spot. <laughs> Everybody knows you are. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing is that we don't really, when we don't know ourselves sometimes, or when we feel afraid or insecure, we might not realize that our facade is, is a pretty flimsy one. That's so true. You, you, you touched on, on the area of wounding. You, you unpack these three core areas of our lives where there's wounding, the kind of very fundamental safety and security, and then moving into esteem and affection, and then finally power and control. And it was really interesting reading through those, those descriptions. I was reading those last night. And, and I'm, in, I'm in therapy as, as well. And it's been quite clear f- from my work with my therapist that, that I don't really have any major issues in safety and security. My mm. fundamental world growing up was very safe, mm. very secure, loved, fed, clothed, mm-hmm. you know, e- even the, the, because I moved around a lot as a kid. So mm-hmm. even the uncertainty of, of relocation and of moving um, was grounded in, in love and, and there was safety with it. But, but where things begin to come off the rails for Jonathan Puddle is in the realm of affection. Yeah. That my parents loved me, but didn't fully understand the language of affection of my soul and weren't able to attune to me in ways that I really needed. And none, none of us would have had that kind of language <laughs> to describe that disconnection, right? Until very recently. Right. Um, you could just unpack a little bit on those on those types, and then and then I think we're out of time. Sure. Well, also, if you moved a lot and you were um, a middle aged child or teenager, one of the biggest things you would have wanted, hope probably likely, because developmentally this would have been accurate, is that you would have wanted to make friends and have connections and feel accepted and um, esteemed or have you know some real connections with your friends. So that would have been a really important part. So that might've been a wounding or an area of difficulty or problems for you. If you're bounced around a lot, that could have been disrupted and disrupted and disrupted. So that could create a wound that your parents can't possibly fill. You know, they can't fill those friendships that get disrupted. And 
that is a wound that that can be for some people it's it's always there and for some people it's it's this <clears throat> little trench for some people it's this gully and for some people it's this cavernous um, ravine and to just over and over you know maybe have trouble with keeping relationships um, or that they you know become worried about abandonment or they become concerned with um appearing a certain way or you know there's all kinds of things that can kind of go wrong when you have a wounding there the, the first wounding like we were talking about and this is from uh, father thomas keating and i got this from him if you go in the book you'll see where i pulled from these different places i didn't come up with this myself or anything um but the, the three core wounds really relate to our humanity and our biological needs these are not sinful things in any way they're just because we're we're human and we're vulnerable and we're vulnerable because we're social mammals and vulnerable in a good way. You know, we're precious and we need each other. So safety and security, because we're not the kind of mammals that are quickly independent. We have this long childhood and we need to be taken care of and fed and kept safe. And sometimes these, these very early things, usually before our two-year two years old, where our memory becomes chronological and verbal, we can experience fearful things that are about our safety and security um, that might have to do with um, safety and security of our, our bodily safety and security. So some people feel always unsafe in their bodies, and that can have something to do with an early trauma that they might have absolutely no memory of, but they just always feel unsafe in their bodies. And that could be because of some issue or a few issues that happened when they were young. And there might not be a way of knowing the actual incident, but they just have um, a tr lot, lot of triggers regarding that. And so there's a wound there that will continue to, to replay over and over in instances in their lives. And it can become very difficult. And that's why it's very important to get a trauma-informed therapist to help with triggering things. Um, the next one we talked about is, is esteem and affection. And this can be esteem and affection wounds from that come from parents, that come from middle school or youth group or something where you get, everyone gets some of these wounds because everybody gets picked on one way or another or has some sort of um, issues as you're growing up that don't go perfectly smoothly. Or even the kids I've heard, I've heard this is true. Even the popular, really good looking, very good at sports kids also have their same issues too. <laughs> For real. So nobody gets through uh, without some kind of wounding. And then the last one is also this very overarching one of power and control. And this is your, your general basic human need to control our situations. And that there's nothing wrong with wanting to have power and control over your situation. It's general uh, agency over your life. But what happens is that if you have a wounding here, uh, you you have anxiety related to this. You have um, you might be manipulative. You might just have a lot of anxious thoughts or do all kinds of things to micromanage your life. And it's not a place of peace for you regarding this. You can't let things go. It's really typical and can be very extra induced by stress or a world pandemic can do it. <laughs> You know, all kinds of things can make this area worse. So you see a lot of mental health issues with the pandemic because it's pushed all these wounds in people 
extra hard. And power and control is a big one. Like you can't go outside anymore. What? You can't do anything that you used to love to do. You don't have any control over whether you're going to wear a mask or not. And who's going to tell me I can't wear a mask? You know, so there's all these issues that that come to the fore straight out of the core wounds. And what um, Thomas Keating talks about is how quieting down, centering down, and allowing God to work on these wounds in silence, essentially, and and through other ways, um, also through therapy, are ways that get down to these core wounds and, and heal them from within. And so the book does go into some of that. But what's really interesting is that once you realize what the core wounds are in yourself, you can start to spot them. And when you do weird things, you're like, I just lashed out. What was that about? Mm. Oh, I didn't feel like I was being very accepted or I felt a little rejected by this friend because I want to have a nice uh, close relationship and that felt threatened. So I lashed out. You know, you, you wind up being able to trace and track why you're doing things. And there's some, it, it creates a lot of uh, connections you might have not had before. Yes. Yes. Very, very true. <laughs> yes. So real. Friends, uh, Lisa's book is called The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. So this stuff that we've talked about here today really kind of just forms the first first third maybe of the book. And then from there, she she unpacks all manner of helpful practices for us in each of these different areas. I mean, each, each area is accompanied by practices that are relevant to each one. And I highly, highly recommend it. Lisa, where can people find out more about you and the book and everything that you're doing? Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I'm on Twitter quite a bit at Lisa Delay, and I love it. I'd love it if you'd come and listen to Spark My Muse at sparkmymuse.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I try to um, put out a new release every Wednesday, and I'm really happy to speak with people who've read the book or have questions or anything like that. I'm also doing... Usually every first Wednesday of the month on Crowdcast, I'm trying to do uh, some kind of uh, class either with this is live and it's recorded to to watch later. I will be doing a class on Evagrius Ponticus, who's the desert father um, that's talked to book and his desert spirituality is examined. It's, it's a really great way to understand what I call the weather systems of the inner life. And we'll be talking about him at 7.30 p.m., May 5th is a Wednesday Eastern time, and that's free. You can just join up for that. It would be great to have people um, come out for that. And also it would be June 2nd, we'll do a book club discussion on this book. And it would be fun to hear what some favorite parts are, if you have them or um, ask questions if you have them. But uh, I would love it if people would read this in groups and and walk through it together. Don't, don't go it alone. Even if you don't, um, it does, you don't have to have all the answers and it doesn't have to be a neat, uh, perfect bow on everything, but try not to um, take it, take your healing just upon yourself. Because I think that that, that is why God provides us friendships is to um, realize we're all quite similar. We all have similar wounds and we are meant to help each other. Amen. So true. Friends, like I said, I recommend it. I highly recommend it. I I can't wait to someday be able to sit down with members of my church and go through it together. Mm. And I really think it's going to, or it should, if it doesn't, I can't make a prediction, but I think it should become a classic of church discipleship uh, because it's it's so broadly encompassing, but goes deep into everything and is 
it's got all the elements that I think are so critical for an honest, authentic life in North America, at least, if not globally, in 2021 and beyond. Like, it's all there. All the pieces are there. So thank you for doing this work and bringing it to us, Lisa. I know I know it's costly. <laughs> so thank you. Sure. It's my pleasure. Would you pray for us or, or teach us some final practice or whatever is on your heart? Yeah. Well, one of the things I do at the last part of the book is I offer a blessing. And one of the things is poet and Anakaram, John O'Donohue, uh, helped me understand was the power and the joy of bestowing a blessing. And really, a blessing is a sincere and kind bidding of goodness for another, for the betterment to become true, for the better to become true. And um, it doesn't a blessing is wonderful because it doesn't require any special action. You just have to hear it. You don't have to perform a ceremony or anything. All you have to do is receive it. So at the end, I I have a blessing I hope um, falls on fertile soil of your heart. And I thought I would read it today and send us off. So it goes like this. Enter into the infinite kingdom. This is the land within you. It extends from your core and out into the world and among you and all others. May the seeds of the Spirit's fruit find purchase among fertile soil, ready for God's loving work. May what springs up sprout in joy and be so lovely that you wouldn't have dared to dream it. But at long last, all is well and lush. May your deepest places be met with the patience of your own grace to yourself and with the kindness of God's light. May you extend the love overflowing from your healed places to make gentle the path for someone else and extend a hand for the next person who may be wearier than you know. Know from your deepest place within that you are loved. May the presence of the divine, the source of love, fill your senses with tender embrace, mercies, and homecoming. May it be well with your soul. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Friends, head over to lisadelay.com. Go follow Lisa on Twitter and elsewhere. She's on Instagram and Facebook, but is most active on Twitter. Make sure you go and sign up for that uh, course that she's offering. Starts in just a few days. And definitely head to the show notes to grab the link to purchase The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. I cannot recommend it to you enough. I'm even tempted to uh, issue a reprint soon of You Are Enough and, and include mention of her book in there because I really want you to go and get it. I think it's going to be really powerful and it's really helping me out a lot right now in this season where I'm just kind of zoomed out a little bit to, no pun intended, what I mean is I have changed the boundaries of my life. I'm not referring to Zoom, though I am Zoomed out also. Zoomed right down into my family and just focusing on my kids, my wife, here and now, uh, day by day. I'm having, I've had some, some dark days, but have had some really good days too. So I'm just trying to do the things that my body and soul need to uh, maintain an even keel. And yeah, so I covet your prayers. Thank you so much for, again, the kind words that many of you have been sending in. If you're not following me on social media, 
you are not missing much right now because I'm not there. But uh, you can follow me at Jonathan Puddle on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You'll find me at JonathanPuddle.com and you'll find my book, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You, available wherever you find books. Grace and peace to you, my friends. We will see you hopefully next week.